In today's episode, listen to Brittany Kemp, CRNA, talk about channeling her grief into creating an entire organization with two other moms. Welcome to the Pause to Remember podcast. My name is Amy Pelkey. I'm a practicing CRNA, yoga teacher, and mother to one son here on earth and one daughter who was stillborn. If you are a healthcare provider who has experienced pregnancy or infant loss, this podcast is for you. My goal is to offer resources, conversations, and mindfulness-based grief tools to help providers like you build the courage to acknowledge and process your emotions, the strength to carry your grief, and resilience so you can preserve your career, relationships, and overall well-being while honoring the memory of your baby. I want to assure you that you are not alone in your grief. I am thankful that you are here today. Let's begin. I would like to welcome Brittany Kemp. She is a CRNA in the Houston area, and she is going to share a little bit about her daughter, Eden Grace, and the MOHA network that she created after Eden passed. So welcome, Brittany. Thank Thank you you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. This is exciting. I like being on the other side of things. (laughs) Yes. I think um, probably the easiest place to start is just sharing a little bit about your family, your work life, what life was like before you got pregnant with Eden Grace and how your pregnancy went and how everything unfolded with her. Of course. Yeah. So I ultimately decided with my husband that we would delay starting our family um, ultimately because I did want to go to anesthesia school. My mom is a CRNA. She's retired. And so I had seen that life and that lifestyle and knew that ultimately I did not want to get pregnant or start a family in the midst of that journey. So Um, I graduated from anesthesia school in December of 2012, and Chris and I had tried kind of towards the end of our program, and then after I had graduated and had no luck getting pregnant, and so went down this really long journey of uh, dealing with infertility. Long story short, ended up having two beautiful boys naturally, um, And then started a fertility journey once we wanted to have a third because the third just would not come along. And so long story short, again, got pregnant naturally for a third time with Eden. Um, We originally, we were not going to do genetic testing. Uh, We wanted to find the gender out early. My mom's gift to us was that she was going to decorate her nursery for us. And my mom has a beautiful home and it's decorated to the T. And so she really wanted to give us this kind of beautiful gift of doing her nursery for us. And so I did the genetic blood work at 10 weeks and at 12 weeks, I know my um, OB very well, we're very good friends, have worked together since day one out of anesthesia school. So we have this great working relationship and friendship. And I'll never forget her calling me. I was working kind of a night shift, afternoon and night shift that day. And I remember her texting and saying that she needed to talk to me and didn't think anything of it, just thought she wanted to chat. And so I ended up getting a dinner break. And got on the phone with her and she basically said, you know, your blood work is coming back positive for screening for Down syndrome. And I was shocked and 
had for most people that know me, I'm fairly talkative. And of the three of us in Moha, I am kind of the face of conversation and building relationships. And so for me to be speechless, it was um, abnormal. And so uh, fast forward, we decided that regardless of her diagnosis, she was our daughter and we were going to raise her to the best of our abilities. And so my OB obviously wanted to follow me, but then referred me to a maternal fetal medicine doctor. And so I had endless appointments. It was the most monitored pregnancy I'd ever heard of. There would be days where I would see my OB on Monday, I would see maternal fetal on Tuesday, and then I go back into the office for non-stress tests and extra ultrasounds. And um, believe it or not, 50% of Down syndrome children normally have some type of genetic anomaly when it comes to their heart. Um, And so Eden Grace was checking out, Um, her heart looked good, she was developing, she was growing, she was moving the entire pregnancy. And I was so excited that my caboose was just gonna be this sweet little girl. And we, were excited that my boys were going to have a different perspective when it came to life and people being different. And yeah, I just, I took her diagnosis in stride and we were just going to live this happy life. It was happily ever after. And so I had decided that I would go out on maternity leave at 37 weeks. I'm a previous C-section. And so They would take me at 39. So I wanted about two weeks to just decompress, um, get things ready in the household nest, spend time with the boys, you know, the last few weeks of just a family of four. Because I knew ultimately once she would be born, whether it would be feeding difficulties or whether we would have to start some type of PT or OT, whatever it was, that we were probably going to have to hit the ground running with her. Um, And so uh, I went to work on Monday of my last week of work, and I work with a group that I ended up sharing with them. We're very close. There's um, about 27 of us, and we are very close-knit. We're just this really sweet work family. And um, my chief CRNA just took great care of me during that pregnancy And um, she had sent out an email that this was my last week of work. They were going to try and get me out around lunchtime. Um, And I remember Monday I went to work. Everything was fine. I had an OB appointment after that. Um, I remember her heartbeat being a little on the lower side. Um, Flagged my OB, had her come in during my non-stress test. She gave me some candy and her heart rate popped right back up. And she said, listen, she's probably resting. You know how it goes. Stop worrying. Um, So I went to to work on Tuesday, had a normal day at work, um, got relieved around lunchtime, went home, decided, you know, I'm big and pregnant. I deserve a nap after work. (laughs) So took a nap, realized I had not felt her that much in the morning. Um, and fast forward, ended up going to the hospital after doing about an hour of kick counts and not feeling her and she had passed away. So we decided to have her that night. Um, I was very fortunate because I had, um, delivered my children at this certain location 
where I had worked previously for eight years. So I knew the anesthesia staff, my best friend still worked there. Um, I knew everybody in labor and delivery. And so I kind of had a very unique situation because I had a lot of familiar faces. And so yes, what I was going through was tragic and felt like it was the end of the world. But at the same time, I was looking into the eyes of people that knew me, that could comfort me just on a different plane, on a different level. Um, And so my two best friends, one being a CRNA and one being a first assist to the surgeon, um, they were the ones that helped deliver her that night. And so I knew everyone in the operating room. I was, um, I was very lucky to have kind of this special, unique circumstance of just looking into the eyes of people that really cared about me. She ended up passing away. She was fully enwrapped in her cord. She had a body cord and a nuchal. So that was um, the cause. And I was very grateful after learning that, that it wasn't my fault. There was no particular reason. It was a fluke accident. Um, Whether I went to work that day or I didn't, whether I went out a week earlier or didn't, it was not my fault and there was nothing I could have done about it. So um, I ended up staying in the hospital for a few days. I had a product called a cuddle cot in my room and it's a device um, that gives families extra time to spend with their child. So kind of the antiquated system prior to the invention of this product was your child would either be placed on ice bags and that helps stop the deterioration process. Cause obviously when your heart is not beating, oxygen's not exchanging, cells are dying and bodies start to change. And so um, they would do one of two things at this hospital. They would either walk your baby back and forth to the morgue um, or they would put your child on ice bags. And I remember, um, in the recovery room, they brought this bassinet out. I don't, you know, it's at Moha, we kind of title it grief brain. Um, things just get real foggy. Um, and so I remember the device being brought to me and I remember then placing her in it. I don't remember the explanation of what it did or why it was there. It was just something that that we use. It is ultimately a, um, it is a blanket that circulates very cold water within it. And then you place baby on top. And so when you're not holding baby or family's not with baby, um, you can place baby in that and it keeps the baby cold. And so ideally it takes the place of the morgue or the ice bags and just allows healing to start to take place because you can then create memories with your baby that ultimately, you know, you're not going to be able to have since you're not going to go home with your child. So I got two full days in the hospital with her. It was absolutely um, kind of a whirlwind of 48 hours. I had multiple friends come visit because again, I had worked at that hospital. And so everybody knew I had delivered her and I had a really beautiful photo shoot with my two best friends who helped deliver her. So we were all holding her and talking and yeah, I created some really great memories with her in those two days. And so I remember going home and I had an outpouring, I mean, outpouring of love and support. A meal train was started. I didn't have to cook dinner or think about meals for over two months. Most of 
who were coworkers or friends. And I'll never forget that my chief CRNA came over, brought me dinner, and it was it brought me joy to be able to talk about her, what she looked like, what her hair color was like, how much she weighed, what she felt like, what I dressed her in. Uh, it was very healing for me. And I'll never forget telling my chief um, about the cuddle cot and how amazing it was and how I got all this extra time with her. And I had no idea that this even existed and that you could spend time with your, your child. She heard that and she hit the ground running. And so uh, weeks later, I got a text message asking for me to be at a certain location because my group wanted to give me something. And so kind of behind the scenes and behind my back, my mom and my chief CRNA were working together. And what ended up happening was my group, my anesthesia group, along with a few members in the OR staff raised funds and bought a cuddle cot for me to then donate to my hospital that I worked at currently. So they presented me with the plaque and um, said, when you're ready, we have the product and we'll donate it. And it's in memory of Eden. It was just this beautiful moment of kind of pay it forward um, that, yes, um, they're my work family, but that these people just did, they didn't have to do, they didn't have to go out of their way to show me that they cared and that they loved me and that this product meant so much to me enough for them to then do this for me. And so it was, it just goes to show you the love that this group has for each other and how supportive we are through the good times and the dark times. And so kind of that's where MOHA got started. And so MOHA is our um, nonprofit organization. It's an acronym, Mothers of Held Angels. And I kind of knew I had to do something more that I had to then create this kind of pay it forward moment um, for the next mom. So Amy was the first assist, my good friend that helped deliver Eden. And her next door neighbor had had a stillbirth two years prior. And so after she delivered, um, helped deliver Eden and on the drive home, she called Anna and said, my friend's going to need you. She's pretty much experiencing the same exact thing you went through. And Anna reached out the night I had her and just kind of stayed in my face and checked on me and called on me and brought books and brought journals and prayed for me. And we developed this instant great friendship because it was, there was something unique about looking to the eyes of another mother of loss. They just get it. They understand the ins and outs of your psyche, your soul, your emotions, your highs, your lows. And I did have a really great support system, but ultimately I knew they just didn't quite understand the depths of the darkness. And then I had a friend who was a recovery room nurse reach out. She had lost a child at 24 weeks. We kind of, it was very organic how we came together. At first it was dinner and talks and crying. And then we all realized like, let, we just, we have to do something different. There's just a need out there and we weren't quite sure of the need and how we wanted to fulfill that. 
but we knew we just had to do something. Moha originally was created to kind of be this very simplistic grief group. We thought maybe we would meet once a month and go over certain topics when it came to grief and loss. And then, yeah, it was just every single time we met, we added another aspect to Moha. And so what we originally came upon was There was something, so Anna had really great care at her hospital. She had an actual bereavement program there and a specific bereavement nurse who kind of walked her through her days in the hospital. I had a great unique situation just because I knew everyone. And so they gave me that extra little specific touch, special care. And then Holland had kind of worst case scenario. She got very limited time with her child. And so we felt like we needed to kind of bridge the gap between the three of us and create kind of a more uniform way of taking care of mom, helping her through the first days in the hospital, um, helping her understand what she can do, what she doesn't need to do, what, how to kind of help her put one foot in front of the other and show her that they're we are the face of survival and that you will get through this. And so that's kind of where Moha got created. So that was long-winded, I know. No, that just such a beautiful journey through something that was devastating to you and will always be a weight that you carry and preserving Eden's memory will always be something on the forefront of your mind and, and your routines I think Mm -hmm. it's a beautiful way to honor her memory to Mm -hmm. do this work with Moha. I think it's beautiful that two other moms who've experienced the same thing, the three of you could come together. And sometimes there's, there's power in having more than one person, you know, to bounce ideas off and whatnot. That's just wonderful. And the cuddle cots, I feel like should be a standard of care. That's my own personal opinion. We didn't have a cuddle cot and I wish that we did. I commend you for starting Moha and then letting it expand. And I know recently you met with some of the executives from the cuddle ah, cot company. Yeah. You want to share a little bit about what that was like? Sure. Your yeah. with so ultimately Moha kind of has this unique mission. So we ideally would like to be with mom from day one of her loss. And so where I work at my specific hospital, it's kind of become our flagship hospital. So we went, met with labor and delivery. We told them our mission and we told them what we were trying to accomplish and they were gung-ho for it. What kind of happens with Moha is uh, we're notified that there's a mom, whether she's she knows of her loss or she has come in recently and found out, Um, but we're notified. And then she's kind of notified and given information as to who we are and and what we do and what we offer. And so obviously there has to be um, consent that we can come in. And so we come in and we sit with mom and we kind of help her begin the journey of healing. And so We bring two things to her. We bring an angel box and it is a box of items that Anna Holland and I came up with on items that we either had or did not have in order to create memories with baby. So we have a journal and Anna journaled her entire length of her stay. She was in the hospital for four days. She would write 
what she had experienced that day, she would hand it off to her husband and he would write his experiences. I never even thought to write one thing down. No one told me to. And so I have nothing written on the days that I was in the hospital. And then I came home and someone gave me a journal. I didn't have a a light bulb on enough, bright enough to put a pen to paper. So we have a journal in there. We have three different books, one for mom, one for dad, and then kind of this very easy to read, almost an informational guide. This book is about what you're going to experience and what the hospital stay is going to be like. We have fuzzy socks in there and we have a nice cozy blanket because everyone knows that the hospital is feels so sterile and not warm. And you just want little pieces of home to make you feel a a tad bit like yourself. And so we have those things in there. We include in the box, if you have a child at home, a book for you to take home to read to, to older children about what just happened. We have in the box um, ways to create footprints and handprints on this beautiful board that you can then take home. Um, I didn't do anything like that. I got footprints and handprints that they had already done while I was in um, still in the OR being closed. Um, But I didn't get to partake in watching her hand kind of mold around a piece of paper and, and see that. And then we have kind of like a trifold pamphlet about quick tips. You get to pick your choice of anesthesia. Do you want to go to sleep? Do you want to stay awake? You have to start thinking about a funeral home. In the state of Texas, you know, that, that's something that um, you have to think about in order to be discharged. Just things that a lot of the time you don't know about or you don't think about because no one ever expects to be in that circumstance in their life. And so we present her with this angel box whether she wants to go through it at that time or wants to go through it later. But it's just, we start this healing conversation of, I am with Moha, I am a mother of survival. You're going to feel like you are not going to be able to survive this and you want to, and you just feel like you're dying. You're not going to, you're going to survive this. And I am that product of survival. And so it shows her that she can get through this, that she's not dying and that she will be able to carry on. And we want to start that from day one. And so after we talk about our angel box and, and share that, then we also explain the cuddle cot, what it's for, why you can use it. You certainly don't have to, but here's the benefit. And then what to expect with the cuddle cot. Like no one, I guess it would have been pretty self-explanatory. Like, hey, once you put your daughter on this really cold um, blanket that has very cold air circulating through it, she's going to be cold to touch. That was very foreign for me. And so ideally, I think, I think after processing what I went through, I kept her bundled up the entire time in the hospital. I think subconsciously it was because, okay, she's cold. So I need to warm her up and I did not unwrap her. I never saw her from diaper up because I just felt like it was so important to keep her warm because she was cold to touch. And so we explained to mom, this is what you'll expect from the cuddle cot. This is normal. But again, we want you to still develop those memories with baby. And so undress baby, do skin to skin. 
Um, if you need to go through the motions of breastfeeding and putting baby to nibble, like all of those things are okay. None of this is taboo and none of this is, will ever be judged. This is your time with your child. And these are these, all these things are okay. And so we try and normalize what to expect, the, the emotions, the feelings that will go along with making memories with baby. And so that's why the color cop so important to us. Our mission feels only half complete if we don't have a cuddle cot in the hospital. And so it's been our mission to raise funds, to be able to buy them, to be able to take care of the greater Houston area. Because ideally, when we go in, I don't feel like we're doing mom justice if we just offer her our angel box. I feel like our angel box coincides with the cuddle cot. They're just, they go hand in hand. And so we just bought our first, well, We've bought numerous cuddle cots, but it was the first one we were able to donate. And so cuddle cot executives flew in a couple of weeks ago and met with us and we ended up podcasting with them. And then they came with us to, to our first donation. So it was beautiful. It was wonderful. They are the most kind and gentle souls. And I'm so, I'm so honored to be a part of their journey that they believe so wholeheartedly in the bereaved mother and taking care of her mind, body, and soul. And we are just, yeah, Moha is so pro cuddle cot and we we couldn't be happier that we've developed a relationship with them and that they want to work with us in the future. And I will do whatever it takes to get a cuddle cot on every shelf. Like you said, I've used the same kind of slogan, like it, the cuddle cot should be a standard of care. And in the UK it is. And a lot of labor and delivery units have multiple cuddle cots. It's been really interesting learning how their bereavement programs are and how they take care of bereaved mothers versus how far behind we are on that spectrum in the United States. We're hoping that through MOHA, we can bring better awareness about bereavement care, about moms that are experiencing a loss educate society about what needs to happen, that this isn't a taboo subject, that it happens more often than not. There needs to be more discussions on it. There needs to be better funding on taking care of mom. Um, Bereavement nurses deserve special training. So yeah. And then, you know, MOHA offers monthly grief meeting groups where we meet monthly and we laugh and cry and eat cake and just feel like we're in a safe space for sharing that no one's going to judge and to feel like you can just be free to share whatever's on your heart And that you have a community of people that are behind you and that are willing to just go the extra mile for you because we understand wholeheartedly what you've been through and what you're going through. So we have women that have lost children 25 years ago, and then we have women that have lost in 2022. So it's that wide range of emotions, of experiences, but we all bring something unique to the table. So we're just, we're excited to keep expanding. We're excited to keep fundraising. It's kind of a, you know, we've talked about it in the past. It's not a happy topic. So it's, you have one of two reactions. Ooh, let me pull away because I don't understand. And, and it's a scary topic. Or we have people who are, how can I help? What can I do? Wh- where to sign up? 
how can I donate? So it's, it's kind of, again, bridging the gap between those two sets of people that it's an okay subject to talk about. It's not taboo. Um, and the more people that understand what we've gone through, what we're experiencing, the better. Lastly, we would hope to eventually, as we raise funds and get bigger, um, we'd like to start some research, research about cord death. You know, there was this huge campaign in the 90s for SIDS, that baby on the back is the best way to go and the best way to sleep. Yeah, we would like the same type of campaign for stillbirth and neonatal loss that big companies understand what we're going through and want to support us and help us learn why these things are happening and how we can better prevent them. And is there some type of diagnostic tool? Yes. Risk assessment. We have really big hopes and dreams at MOHA. Of course, we, we know that we've had to kind of start small, you know, we're shooting for the moon eventually. So that's amazing. It's been about a year. It was a year, I think, last month that it even was April. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like this first year has been filled with a lot of work getting Moha up and going. Yes. There, there's probably been a lot of healing and processing that has occurred with this type of work. Can you talk about re-entering back into your clinical practice as a CRNA sure. and what that was like and the challenges you had, or maybe a trigger that was really challenging at first or that sort sure. of thing? Yeah. Um, I think again, because my work family was behind me 110% from the moment they found out about my loss and on, and then raising funds for the cuddle cut. I just, I went back to sweet, kind, understanding, familiar faces that it was kind of my home away from home. And it really did feel like that, that if I was having a really tough day or tough moment or was triggered that I could call out and get out of the case. They understood I did OB on every Friday and they understood that when I came back, I couldn't even touch OB again. It was just, it was unbearable to even think about going back to that department and seeing pregnant women. And I think they did the best they could with handling me with the most care and love. And yeah, they loved on me and they took care of me. I took three full months of maternity leave. I felt bad about it, believe it or not, that I don't have a baby to take care of at home. And so why, you know, why do I deserve 12 weeks of of staying at home? But my mental health needed a strong three months. Um, I probably could have used more time to heal, but I think Anna and Holland really helped me understand that I can function and I can have good days and I can have bad days and in somewhere, anywhere in between those two emotions and that it's okay. One did go back after her loss. Another one didn't. Um, And so there was no right, wrong or indifferent answer as to how you go back to work. It's what's good for you. It's what works for your family. I knew I needed to start being productive that I felt like I was going to stay in darkness way too long if I didn't get up and and be productive. I do have to say, you know, anesthesia was a passion. I had taught for two and a half years in the clinical setting. I absolutely adored my students. 
you know, I loved going home and making them an assignment and then talking to them on the phone about it and what to expect and what that surgeon liked. It brought me life. And when I got back to work, that passion was gone. I didn't care about anesthesia anymore. The world just looked different after burying your child. There's something so innately weird and wrong about having to bury a child that it just doesn't, it doesn't feel right. And it feels like the universe is doing like a backward spin. And so, yeah, the passion was gone with anesthesia. Some days, eight hours felt like a million, but I have to say a year out, I'm back doing OB every Friday. I do love my job, but I definitely have realized that my passion now is Moha and my passion is kind of has a bigger purpose, not that anesthesia doesn't have a great purpose and, and that it's still a service and it's still somewhat paying it forward. If you could look at it that way, it's still taking care of someone. I needed to kind of channel the grief and that energy in a different light. And so, yeah, Moha is definitely my passion. And if I could I hope my my chief doesn't hear this, but if I could quit anesthesia tomorrow, I would and do Mohawk a hundred percent full time. And maybe that's just because when I'm, when we're podcasting and when we're meeting our bereavement nurses and when we're meeting with cuddle cod or our moms, I feel a sense of Eden with me. I, I feel closer to her. Like, like as if she's, she's living through all that work. And I don't feel that necessarily at work doing anesthesia. So I guess that's the, that's kind of the comparison that the passion has just kind of changed. It's evolved into something different. Anesthesia pays the bills. So got to keep with that for as long as possible. But ideally we would like to, we would like to see Moha grow into, um, into something nationally that, you know, we're recognized in every state. And um, so as of right now, it's just the three of us that go in and visit with mom. So we kind of take this like 24 hour, seven day a week coverage, call coverage. And so when a, a loss comes in and we've heard about it, the three of us just kind of collaborate. And so what we would like to do, because there are so many moms out there that are not in healthcare, but want to do more and they just don't know what to do. So we want to grow what we call our angel ambassador program. And so we have done specific training in um, the grief and bereavement kind of world. And so now we can train the next mom to be the mom that goes in and spends time with mom and shares about her loss and explains what the angel box is and explains what the cuddle cot is. So it just, it would be an extension of Anna Holland and I. And so ideally, yes, we would love to be nationally. We would love to have an angel ambassador in every hospital and that will take time and takes money. And so it's going to take a while to grow that aspect of, of what we're trying to do, but the three of us are three determined little women. So <laughs> it'll, it'll get there eventually. I hear you. And so many things that you just said resonated with me. It sounds like your boss is very understanding. Your chief is very understanding like mine is. And he heard me say on a podcast that I was a guest on, I would love to go to one day a week and work on pause to remember more. And he texts me after he listened to it and said, I heard that about one day a week. <laughs> And guess what? I'm one day a week now. <laughs> so, no way. 
Dang. Yes. Yes. Wow. Well, part of, part of it was um, just some things had changed in our family with the pandemic and I needed to physically be home more. Um, sure. But part of it is I'm working a whole lot more on pause. Remember, you know, putting together a podcast, I'm a one woman show, you know, I, I yeah. do everything, the editing, the uploading, all that stuff. So yeah, yeah, it, it takes time, but like you said, I, makes me feel like I'm a little bit closer to Anna and I'm somehow preserving her memory while paying it forward. And the whole idea of, yes, anesthesia, I was very passionate about anesthesia as well. And there was a shift after we lost Anna and I very Mm -hmm. much connect with that feeling at my core. And you may feel this it's about taking care of people. So whether mm-hmm. you are taking care of the person in the OR or you're taking care of the bereaved mom, it's still taking care of another mm-hmm. person. And so it's just a pivot. It's just a pivot. It's a pivot. That's a good way to put it. Yes. Yeah. Kind of a redirection. Yeah. Yes. Another thing you said that I really want to emphasize for other healthcare providers is we are not trained in our programs to prioritize our mental well-being. You saying, I took the full three months, I felt guilty, you know, physically, you probably could do the job, mm-hmm. but mentally you needed that time. I really appreciate you saying, I might've even needed more. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important for other providers to hear that and creating the boundaries to say, this is what I need. And then maintaining them. If they're, you're getting pushed to come back, I think it's really important to highlight that. So thank you for sharing that. Sure. Of course. I think it's, I think it's just what, what works for you? What makes Mm -hmm. you feel comfortable? Um, you know, is, are you hyperventilating and having anxiety attacks? Just thinking about putting on your uniform, you're probably not ready to go back. I, I think what was really important for me that I knew going back, I could never do 40 hours a week initially. And so I took two weeks of going in for four hours, three days a week. And I went during a time that would just be breaks. And so for me, it was, you know, an anesthesia, you go meet your patient and you discuss the anesthetic and you discuss their health history. And there's a lot of conversation. And I knew I was not ready for conversations. So I picked a time that was helpful to my group because that was generally around breakfast and lunch break. So I knew that I would be needed, but I knew there would be very limited interaction with patients. And that's what I needed. I needed ideally to be with my sleeping patient and doing my anesthetic and and nose to the ground and working rather than a lot of the conversations between the patient or a lot of conversations between the people in the OR or again, conversations about your anesthetic and when you drop off your patient in the recovery room. So I picked a time that was good for me and for my group. And we, um, you know, we're, we work in two week um, pay periods. And so they said, whatever you do, just, we ask you do that you do it for two weeks. And I said, okay, so I'm going to give you this block of schedule for the first two weeks. And then I'm going to need to reevaluate if I need another two weeks of doing that, or if I can go back into a full 40 hour week load. And so what was nice after having her um, and losing her was they were creating a special shift um, because we had a surgeon coming in to the hospital from out of state 
that wanted 24 hour anesthesia coverage. She's a neurosurgeon. I immediately, it immediately perked my interest because I knew I, I didn't want to work five days a week anymore. And I knew again, that shift in perspective that I needed to cherish what I had at home. And my two boys were four and six when we lost her. And I wanted to create more memories with them and be home more. I already had a ton of mom guilt, but I was able to kind of compartmentalize because I knew that I had a really great upbringing, even though my mom was a nurse anesthetist and spent a lot of time and a lot of hours in the OR. I knew that I was a happy child. Uh, Yes, she didn't make it to some of the Christmas programs and, you know, the Mother's Day teas. But I did just fine and I adjusted just fine and I was, uh, you know, a well-adjusted adult. So they would be fine as well. But then once you lose a child, your perspective kind of changes on what's important in life. And so I was the first one to say, I want the 24-hour coverage because that meant I would work two eights and a 24 and I would have two days off a week. And so that's been a wonderful adjustment. I've started that since I lost her and... Tuesdays and Thursdays are great. I'll come home if it's been a really hard 24 hours and I'll take a nap, but then I get to now, you know, go have lunch with my child at school or I haven't missed a mom's program since then. And so I've just been able to reprioritize what's like important to my heart. Making money, yes, is important, but it's not the end all be all. And the two children that are living in my household are who needs me and work can come second. That was really helpful being able to restructure my schedule um, and just not take as much call. Realize that I get um, stretched thin easily now. Um, And I don't know if that's just because, you know, newly developed kind of anxiety or a little bit of um, underlying depression just from, you know, the circumstances of the whole last year of my life that I get worn out easily. And so, you know, I don't take as much call anymore. And I do say no more often than not when it's a volunteer type of basis of asking to stay late. Um, Yeah, it's just, I've learned what's important to me and I've stuck with it. I think that's really important to hear. Thank you. Is there anything that you found helpful, either a book you read or going to therapy or some other kind of self-care that you did for yourself over the last year that you think would be helpful for others to hear about? I think therapy is huge. I was actually working those two weeks before going back full-time and I was giving a break And long story short, a coworker never came back. And so I ended up finding out that a family member had passed away and that she had to go be with her family. After talking to her and sharing kind of a unique perspective on loss, we have both realized that therapy is so crucial on being able to process emotions and thoughts that an outsider can help you with because you people that know you are going to have a different perspective. They're going to try and take care of you and not coddle you, but it will just be a different, a different and unique perspective when someone knows you. When a therapist or counselor 
they're more like a mediator. And so it's, here's the professional view on things. Here's what I've learned over 20 years of experience. And here's what the book says. And so that was extremely helpful for both of us. It was, okay, I want to give you homework. A friend's not going to say, I want to give you homework. I need you to think about X, Y, and Z or do X, Y, and Z. And so a therapist might or a counselor might. And so those, those perspectives were helpful. I think it was very important for my close friends to, for there there to be open dialogue that I was very um, thankful and, and probably way overly thankful to them that they, would, they listened and I would call at all hours of the day and needed to talk and process and vent and get things out. And so it was being able to openly share with family and friends and not feel judgment. It was be creating moha and knowing that I could then discuss thoughts and feelings with them and then therapy. That was, those were three kind of crucial things. And I think what was interesting too is my husband and I kind of took a unique perspective to therapy. For a while, he talked to her, I talked to her, and then we would both talk to her. And so our bill was through the roof, but it was helpful for us. So he could say, I'm tired of talking about her. I'm tired of talking about loss. I'm, I'm, I'm stretched thin. And he could vent. And then I could say to her, we don't talk enough about Eden. We don't visit the cemetery enough. Um, and then we could meet in the middle and we could voice our frustrations and our concerns with her. And she could take Chris's perspective on grief and loss and my perspective and help us kind of intertwine our thoughts on it and our feelings and where we could find a middle ground. Um, There's just something very different about loss with a mom versus loss with a dad. I think just for the mere fact that we carried them and we created this unique bond. And so, you know, Chris just didn't have quite that bond with her. So I had to, I had to accept the fact that I was going to grieve very differently from him. And I just couldn't see that for the longest time. And that was huge with the therapist. So I am a huge proponent of therapy. I am as well. I think it really helped me. My, my husband didn't come um, with me, but um, our grieving was very different and his grieving seemed to not come to an end, but just not weigh him down on a day-to-day basis. Uh Um, the way it did for me, that whole first year for me was, it was like the year first and every Mm -hmm. holiday was a trigger. And for him, he didn't have that emotional response to every first that I did. And I, and like you said, you just have a different bond. He didn't feel, you know, our daughter fluttering around in his belly and you know, that sort of thing. So Yeah. Yeah. I think the light bulb moment for us was me talking about like a Pampers commercial that the baby on the screen may look six months old. And what would Eden be doing at six months old? And what would she look like? And would she be hitting milestones? And so it would create this like new track of grief that day. And sometimes it would snowball and sometimes I could back myself out of it. But he was like, oh, well, I see those commercials and I don't think about her at all. So those were light bulb moments of like, wow, we never would have been able to really connect those dots unless we had a counselor, uh, you know, unless we had a therapist. So it was, it was instrumental in helping us. And we still talk to her. So 
we talked to her every day for an entire year and we backed off on the frequency of how often we talk to her a week, but we do talk to her every week, whether it's together or separate. One of us is still checking in and still discussing and, and still creating um, better ways to take care of each other. So that was, that was huge because I didn't want us to become the statistic of um, high divorce rates after loss of children. So absolutely. Just to kind of tidy up this, you know, part of the conversation in terms of families and and family members grieving differently. Do you have any recommendations for other parents who have young children? Yours were four and six at the time Mm of Mm -hmm. Eden's passing. Any suggestions you have for parents who are struggling to answer questions or work through any kind of behavior changes or anything like that? I think it's really, it's, who is your child? What's allowing them to flourish? What is holding them back? I have two very different boys. They are 21 months apart, but they could be like light years apart. They're just so different. My oldest is intellectual. He is bright, but can be kind of reserved. And then my, I guess they're now seven and five, but um, my five-year-old who was four at the time is my cuddle bear and um, the sweetest little nature doesn't really care so much about learning, but is the life of the party and friends with everyone. So we, uh, ironically, Chris and I discussed how we were going to leave the hospital because we had her in 21 and still the COVID restrictions were in place and they were not able to come to the hospital and meet with her and meet her and spend time with her. And I thought it was way too over their head to FaceTime. It would, I think it would have done some detrimental damage. So we decided to come home and tell them what had happened. And I had read that book um, that we have in our angel box that Anna read to her children. And it's this beautiful book and very simplistic. And so then I kind of opened the floor for questions. And of course my intellectual child had every question under the sun. Um, you know, cause I had to say, okay, she's not in my tummy anymore and we're going to bury her and we're going to have a service. And by then our house was already flooded with flowers. And so I had to explain what, why people send flowers. And then we went into, well, what do you mean her body's in the ground, but her soul's with Jesus. So then we had to go into conversations about souls and does Jesus live above the clouds or in the clouds? And so Um, yeah, I just, I had to satisfy his curiosity. I answered every question the best way I knew how, and then he was done. And whereas Asher just sat on my side, the side of me, held my hand, had tears in his eyes. And he is my child that still wants to talk about sister that still cries at night, missing sister and wonders what she's doing. And is sad that he didn't get to teach her how to dance. So I think you just need to play into the parts of your child that you know the best and honesty to us was the best policy. We didn't sugarcoat things. Um, We didn't create elaborate stories. We're Christians. We believe you die and you go to heaven and you spend time with Jesus. And so that's exactly what we told our children. We didn't create this fairy tale that this is what happened. And so I just feel like it's, it's case by case. How, How does your family run? What are your thoughts? What are your beliefs? And you stick true to that. And then, you know, throughout this process, we have talked about telling your children and how to tell your children 
We believe at Moha that give them as much as their little brains at their age can handle and let them come back to you. Let them come back with questions because they will, whether it will be in 10 minutes or in a year, their little inquisitive minds will want to know more and just be ready, be ready for those kind of questions. Because sometimes they will take you off guard, catch you off guard. And, you know, I think keeping the dialogue open, we still talk about Eden Grace all the time. She is everywhere in our home. Um, She has, my mom ended up designing this out of this world goes into architectural digest nursery. It's the most beautiful room I have ever seen in my entire life. I sit in there all the time. They come in there and read books while I'm crying or listening to a podcast. We have a memorial wall in our home of things that I have collected or things that people have given me. And that faces our living room. We go to her grave as a family. And so, yeah, we just, we create this like, this very comfortable, easy dialogue between them. And when they're ready to talk about her, we do, but mom doesn't hold back and mom doesn't hold tears back because I want them to see that it's okay to cry. Even though you're a little boy, it's okay to cry. It's okay to have emotions. And I don't want to suppress that those emotions become foreign for them as they get older. I want them to see that I miss her and that she was a part of our family and that We love her. I want them to know that compassion that I have for her and the longing I still have for her and how much I miss her and that she's, she's still a part of us, even though she's not living. And so my husband ended up giving me his office. And so we've created kind of Moha headquarters in our, in our home. And so we talk about Moha and what we're doing and why we do it. And Um, Yeah, we just, it's just a daily conversation. It's daily dialogue. I think that's important. And I don't think any question that a child asks you, they're not ready to hear the answer. I think they only ask for the information that they are ready to process. So they almost become a guide for you Yeah, as things unfold. For sure. They, they help kind of navigate the path and then you just kind of follow it with them. However, however, they're going to go down it. But yeah, I definitely believe that they're, they're going to process things in their own time and I don't shove it down their throat, but I don't suppress it. It's it's just a good balance of like keeping her alive in the house. Thank you for sharing that. Well, as we wrap up here, is there any parting thoughts? I will definitely put links in the show notes to Moha Network, your podcast, the work that you you are doing with Anna and Holland. Is there anything else that you would like to share before we close down for the- No, I just think it's important that, that we just create this open dialogue of our experiences and our thought processes. And again, that this um, is a sad subject, but it still needs to be discussed and it needs to be normalized. What's the best way to do that? I probably don't have that 100% figured figured out, but I certainly am going to spend the rest of my life trying to figure out how. So um, I just want to create more awareness and better education around what we've been through because it's more women than you think. And I had not one glimpse or ounce of education around stillbirth or neonatal loss 
prior to this, I wish the average Joe knew, knew more. I think it would just be helpful all around that that mental health um, will will definitely take a toll on everyone in the family. The degrees of it, who knows? Will it affect your children as much as it affects you? Probably not, but it affects everyone. And then it creates this ripple effect to families and friends. And so if the average Joe knew more, I think we could just create better understanding and then help help start healing faster. Mm-hmm. And heal as communities mm-hmm. and family units, as opposed to each individual trying to navigate the journey on their own. 100%. Yes, exactly. Yeah, for sure. Well, Brittany, I just want to thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your journey. Thank you for the work that you and Anna and Holland are doing at Mohan Network. And I look forward to getting this out to other providers and anybody else listening so that they can hear your journey and probably connect with many of the things that you went through and your family went through and maybe even want to reach out and join part of your efforts at Moha Network and and support you as well. Yeah, feel free to reach out to our email. We're hello at mohanetwork.org. Um, send us a comment. Um, yeah, we're excited. We don't get a ton of feedback, but it's, it's wonderful when we do that. Oh, we listened to your podcast and this really hit home because of X, Y, and Z, or, Oh, I read this and I really appreciate when you said that. So yeah, we appreciate the feedback. We'd like to know what people feel like we're doing right or what we could tweak and get better. Um, cause listen, we, we laugh because we're two nurses and a teacher. We're in no way, shape, or form like amazing business women. So we're tr- trying to kind of create this business off of experience and what we know, but we know we can get better at it. So yeah, um, constructive criticism is always great. Beautiful. Well, thank you again. Thank you. I think Brittany was able to clearly articulate that everybody's journey through grief is unique and there is not a right way or a wrong way to do it. So as we close this episode, I would like to pause and remember Eden Grace and her beautiful life. Thanks for joining us here today. For any healthcare provider who is grieving after pregnancy or infant loss, know that there is now a dedicated virtual support group specifically for you. Whitney Jablonski, who's another CRNA, and I started this. It meets on the second Monday of every month at 7.45 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So that means the next meeting will be on July 11th. If you would like to be a part of this group, it's an opportunity for you to share about your loss, what you're going through now, ask for support, or simply come and listen. There are no expectations, just come as you are. For more information, there is a link in the show notes. If you would like to help other grieving providers find this podcast, please rate and review this episode or any of the episodes in the Apple Podcast app. Thanks again for being here. I look forward to sharing more with you next week. Mm -hmm.